Dennis Levitt. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We are Barry and Anita Chenault. My name is Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Weisman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. So evangelism to me is just basically sharing the gospel, um, outreaching to non-believers. I guess I work in a place where talking about being a Christian, talking about God uh, can almost be like a laughable subject. It's difficult to openly talk about um, being a Christian and, and the struggles of being a Christian or you know the, the happiness that being a Christian can bring you. Church, church for me has been the one of the few places in the world that I've been able to find good people. Church to me is just community coming together um, to worship God, hold each other accountable, um, serve the community, outreach, um, all those things. Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 17. And while you're turning there, I want to let you know about a couple of things going on at Coastal. First of all, two Sundays from now is a big day. We got a couple of things going on on Sunday, October 30th. First of all, we have our baptism class after the third service at 1230. Lunch is provided. If you are interested in being baptized, you have to attend the class. And listen, guys, I would strongly encourage you if you're a follower of Jesus, but you've not yet taken that step of believer's baptism. Uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit in the sermon today and next week, but it's such an essential step for a follower of Christ to take. So please sign up for that class. Go coastal.org slash baptism, or you can write that on your connect card. We'd love for you to attend that class later that night we have trunk or treat Sunday night, October 30th, four to 6 PM. Uh, so parents with young kids, we'd love for you to bring them out. It's going to be a great time. As I said last week, we need two things to make trunk or treat happen. Anybody remember what those two things are? We need trunks and treats, okay? Uh, so if you are willing to decorate your trunk uh, to be used during the trunk or treat, that'd be great. You can sign up online or you can sign up on one of the cards over here. Or if you'd like to donate candy, that would be awesome as well. You can just buy a bag of candy and drop it in the box over there. We still have our shop going that we are trying out online, gocoastal.org slash shop, where you can buy t-shirts and sweatshirts and all other kinds of cool stuff so that you can rep Coastal. Uh, and just a reminder, it's only going through November November 13th, all of the profits, uh, it just goes to cover our costs and then goes toward missions. Okay. So it goes for a great cause and it lets you rep coastal in the community. So we'd love for you to grab one of those. Finally, uh, we have these evangelism handouts that are at both of the desks. Amy is going to help me out again. She did this in the first service too. Thank you. Because I always forget to grab one. Make sure you grab one of these on the way out. Okay. We're doing a sermon series on evangelism and our team at coastal has put together several different methods of sharing the gospel. So this can help you as you're thinking about having gospel conversations. So please make sure, thank you, make sure you grab one on the way out. All right. Today, I want to talk to you about the worst tourist of all time. Now, the Apostle Paul, he was great at a lot of things. Uh, we're going to see in this text, he was a great theologian. He was a great preacher. He was a great missionary, a great church planter. But he was a terrible tourist. And here's why. 
when you're visiting a big city or you're visiting a different country or whatever, what do you typically want to do as a tourist? Well, you want to see the sights. You know, you want to do the experiences. You want to try the restaurants. You want to go to the museums. You want to do all of that kind of stuff. You know, you're probably thinking even now of one of the coolest places you've ever visited. So for me, uh, several years ago, I got to go on a mission trip to Zimbabwe and I got to see Victoria Falls and I got to go uh, on a safari and see all kinds of animals. It was really cool. I remember when I went to New York City years ago and, you know, I'm a Gloucester boy. So for me, that was like, like a fish out of water. But you know, I remember when you go to New York, you got to try the pizza. So I ate at this place called Sabaro. It was really great. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, but the point is you're supposed to take it all in. And Paul had this cool opportunity to go to one of the greatest cities in the ancient world in Athens this center of history and culture and religion. So you'd think, you know, he'd be checking out the museums or he'd go to the Parthenon or he'd want to go where, I don't know, Socrates lived or whatever. But instead he walks around, he sees the idols, he gets good and mad. Then he goes in the marketplace and starts sharing the gospel until they bring him into this public forum and make him defend himself. Not a great tourist, but listen, what we do have in this story is one of the best examples of evangelism in all of scripture. What we have here in this story is an excellent example of how to share the gospel. So as we're taking this sermon series and talking about evangelism, how we as Christians share our faith, last week we talked about the what and the why of evangelism. We saw what evangelism is. It's proclaiming the gospel. We saw why we should care about evangelism because we're following the example of Jesus, because we love people and because we want to share in the joy of seeing them come to know Christ. Today, we want to talk about the how. And the way that we're going to talk about the how of evangelism is to look at this example. And while there are many examples of evangelism in scripture, I think that this is a really good example for us. Because I think there are a lot of parallels between this culture and our culture. Athens was a city filled with idols. I believe we live in a country that is filled with idols. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But here's the bottom line, guys. Biblical evangelism wisely and honestly proclaims the gospel while trusting God with the results. That's what it's all about. How do we share the gospel? We do it with wisdom and with honesty while we trust God with the results. So here's what we're going to do. I want to open us with a word of prayer. We're going to walk through this story together, seeing what we learn from it. And then at the end, I want to pull out three points, three principles that we can apply to how we share the gospel as followers of Jesus. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that you have given us your word, Lord, that you have given us this, this example for us to follow. Lord, you've given us this mission, this great commission to go into the world and make disciples. And Lord, a big part of that is how we share the gospel with other people. So I pray that today you would show us how to do it more effectively. And Lord, not only would you teach us what to say and how to say it, but Lord, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to speak up as you give us opportunity. Lord, we love you. And I pray that today your Holy Spirit would work through the preaching of your word to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. So Acts chapter 17, by the way, it, yeah, I know it makes it longer to say, but it's the book of Acts, not the book of Acts. You know, it's not like a, an instrument that used to chop down a tree or a weapon. Acts. No, it's Acts. Sorry. So uh, Acts 17 
I can hear you guys all saying it, hear all the S's. Um, So there's this pattern in Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts. There's three different missionary journeys. What typically happens is, he says in Romans, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he goes to the synagogue first. He preaches to the Jews. Usually it doesn't go well. And then he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches the gospel. And eventually he gets run out of town, rinse and repeat. So that happens in Thessalonica in chapter 17. Then that happens in Berea. And so then we get to our story where Paul is in Athens and it begins in verse 16 this way. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, who's them? That's Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions. They get separated and he's waiting for them in Athens. While he's there, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So again, he finds himself in Athens. Let's talk a little bit about Athens. Well, it was one of the cultural centers of the ancient world. It was home to many of the great philosophers in human history, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was home of the world's most famous university at the time. It was a center of culture and architecture and all of these things. But it was also, most importantly for us today, a religious center where many gods were worshipped. Hundreds of different gods were worshipped. One ancient writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The city was full of idols everywhere you went. And the text says in verse 16 that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Literally, he was angry. He was frustrated. He was grieved when he saw that this city was full of idols. The sin of his culture grieved his heart and even brought about a righteous anger. And let me suggest to you this morning, church, that that should happen with us as well. We ought to be grieved when we see the sin of our culture. We ought to be grieved when we see the chaos and the confusion in our world today about issues that are so basic to human existence. We ought to be grieved by the sin of our culture, yes. However, what should that anger lead us to do? What did it lead Paul to do? Did Paul start campaigning for a politician? Because Athens really needs some change around here. Did Paul get on Facebook? Like, I'm going to tell everybody Athens is going to hell in a handbasket. My Facebook friends need to know about this. Is that what Paul does? No, let's see what he does. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What was the solution to the sin of Paul's culture? Evangelism. Evangelism. The solution to the problems of the world was the gospel. Christ is the answer. Christ is the solution. We look at our world and we often see the problems and we see the issues and we see the sin and we see the brokenness. And yes, that should grieve us, but that grief should lead us to share Christ because he is the only one who can do anything about it. Christ is the savior that we proclaim. It says that he reasoned first, again, following that pattern I mentioned, starts in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and then in the marketplace. Think of like a a public square. Don't think you hear marketplace like some weirdo walking around the checkout line at Walmart, just going up to people like, have you heard of Jesus or anything like that? No, that's not what's going on here. He's saying in the marketplace, it was like a public square. He would reason with anybody who was there and they would discuss Christ. Now look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what did this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus 
and the resurrection. So uh, he gets the attention of the, the elites, the intellectual elites and the philosophers of his day. And they weren't a big fan of, they weren't impressed. They called him a babbler. He's preaching foreign divinities like Jesus and the resurrection. So verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we wish, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Areopagus, or, or it was also known as Mars Hill, was, an, again, another sort of public forum where the philosophers would gather to discuss the ideas of the day. And they tell Paul, man, this is weird. These are strange things. So they bring him there so they can hear what he has to say. And the strange things were Jesus and the resurrection. And I love verse 21. It shows me that the Bible has a sense of humor sometimes. Uh, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke wasn't impressed by his trip to Athens. He's like, these useless people. They just sit around talking about hearing something new. I, I just enjoy that. But anyway, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's now in the Areopagus. He's beginning his sermon, his gospel presentation. And this is how he starts. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. I take that as, as a commendation or as a compliment. He's being courteous. He's finding something to praise about them. He's putting it really nicely, in other words. He's mad at their idolatry, verse 16. And he says, I see that you're very religious. He's starting with a compliment. This is a side note, guys. Be nice to people, okay? Be nice to people. I know that should go without saying, but there's nothing gained by being jerks for Jesus. You know, in our evangelism, uh, my mom used to say, you catch more flies with honey than with a swatter. Like, be kind to people. It doesn't mean water down the gospel. We're going to get to that in a minute. But be kind to people. Be courteous. Find something good to look for to praise. But then it says, he noticed an altar to the unknown God. So they had hundreds of gods, but they're like, well, wait, what if we miss one? So they had a catch-all altar to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. Paul, as he walks around Athens, he notices that, and he uses it as his bridge, as his point of contact. He sees that and uses that to go into his gospel presentation. He begins his gospel presentation in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So notice how Paul starts. He starts with God. He starts by saying, you have this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about him. The true and living God is the creator of everyone and everything. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the ruler. He is the one who sustains all of creation. He is not served, uh, he does not need us, but rather we need him. 
In him, we live and move and have our being. And you guys are calling this God unknown, but really he has made himself known to us so that we might seek him. And by the way, you know this already. Paul says to them, you know this already. You know how I know you know it? Because these are what your own poets are saying. He then quotes from two of their sources, two authorities they knew that they would have respected. In verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. He's saying the true God has made himself known to us and you guys know this. But here's the problem. Verse 29, Paul gets to the issue now. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul moves, he makes the bridge to their culture. He says, this is the real God who has made himself known. And now he's confronting their sin and their idolatry. He said, if we are God's offspring, as you yourselves know, then why are you creating gods in our image? Why are you making gods out of stone and silver and gold? He's saying, I noticed that you're very religious, but your religion is wrong. Because you've created these idols instead of coming to the true and to the living God. He said, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. In other words, he has chosen not to pass judgment on in history immediately, but rather he is being patient to give them an opportunity to repent. It says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then we get to the climax of his gospel presentation because he gets to Jesus. He said, now we know that God will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And he has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. He gets to the resurrection and that's where the sermon ends, as we'll see in a minute. Why the resurrection? You remember back in verse 18, why did they bring Paul here? What were the strange things that they had to hear about? Jesus and the resurrection. The climax of Paul's sermon, the thing that gets him kicked out is bringing up the resurrection. Why are they so worried about the resurrection? What's the big deal? Well, Paul knew that this would have been the really difficult thing for them to accept in their culture, because according to Greek philosophy, according to the Greek worldview, the material world was generally speaking viewed as bad or evil, and the spiritual world was viewed as good. So in a Greek way of thinking, the ultimate goal or salvation or bliss would be escaping the physical body and having a pure spiritual existence. So the resurrection of the body, like why on earth would you want that? Both Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection, that would have been foolishness to them. And here's how we know that, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The story ends with a report of the results, and we see three very different results here, right? Some mocked, some were curious, we'll hear you again, and some believed. But here's what's interesting to me, guys. All of them heard the same sermon. 
all of them heard the exact same gospel presentation. You know what that teaches us? It teaches us that we cannot judge evangelism success by the results in this life. We cannot judge evangelism success by the numbers of hands raised, the numbers of prayers prayed. Evangelism is successful when we are faithful to share the gospel. Results are in God's hands. God is the one who saves. Our job is to be faithful, to lovingly and passionately and honestly and wisely proclaim the gospel and trust that God will use that to save his people. So now that we've walked through the story, church, I want to now give you three points. I want to pull three points from this story that we can apply in how we share the gospel as followers of Jesus. The first one is this, know your audience. Know your audience. If evangelism is you sharing the gospel with another person or group of people, we will be well served to know our audience. Now, I want to be clear. What is most important, what is number one priority is knowing the gospel. What we need more than anything else is to know the gospel. And I've been challenging you guys to memorize the three core facts of the gospel. So we're going to do this again. You ready? Jesus is, Jesus died. Jesus Great job, you guys. I'm not going to, you know, this isn't being recorded. Maybe it is, but you guys did better than the last service, okay? I'm just saying. You guys did better than the last service. Don't tell them I said that, uh, but you guys did a great job. Um, we need more than anything else to know the gospel. That is foundational. However, we would also be well served in evangelism by knowing our audience. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're going to be a missionary in a foreign country, you would be foolish not to learn the language not to learn the cultural customs, not to learn a little bit about their history, not to learn a little bit about their values and their worldview. If you want to share the gospel effectively in that culture, you have to know that culture in order to speak to it well. And Paul models that here. Paul models that here. Look in verse 23, it says, I passed along and observed the object of your worship. He knew their religious and their cultural beliefs through observation. Paul knew their culture so well that he could quote from two different authorities that they respected. Paul knew which aspect of the gospel would strike a nerve. And so that's what he focused on. I love that. Paul wanted to know the culture so that he could offend it well, right? <laughs> he knew the hardest pill to swallow was the resurrection. So he kept mashing the resurrection button. He knew the culture, and so he used that to share the gospel. So let me give us a few ways that we can know our audience as followers of Jesus. Uh, first on a macro level, then second on a micro level. So in a big picture level, we should seek as Christians to have an understanding of the world that we live in. Not so that we can become conformed to it, but so that we can preach the gospel in a way that people understand in a way that makes sense. Let me encourage you to seek to know the culture, understand the issues that are being discussed, understand the worldview that leads people to think how they do. The concept of worldview is really helpful in evangelism. So what is a worldview? A uh, worldview is a pair of glasses, intellectually speaking. Now I don't look at my glasses when I'm wearing my glasses. I look through my glasses at everything else. And my glasses color the way that I view all of reality. It colors the way that I interpret events, the way that I experience the world. A person's worldview is that on an intellectual level. It is their foundational bedrock commitments, beliefs, values that lead them to interpret everything else. It is your core values, your core beliefs, things as basic as who is God? Who am I? Why am I here? 
Those sorts of foundational questions comprise your worldview. And so I think we will be well served in evangelism to have a basic understanding of the worldview of our culture. Let me give you a few aspects of a modern Western worldview. We're very individualistic in our culture, very individualistic. All of our highest values have to do with the individual, self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-esteem. Those are our highest values in our culture, have to do with the self. But next, the prioritization of feelings over everything else. We live in a culture where feelings are number one. You know, feelings rank higher than objective truth. But we also live in a culture, speaking of truth, that doesn't really believe in truth anymore, right? There is no objective true or false, but it's my truth, it's your truth, it's everybody's truth, what's true for you is true for you, it's true for me, whatever. Understanding those things makes it easier for us to know how and on what level to engage when we talk about the gospel. It helps us understand what are the things that they value, that they care about, and then I can bring the gospel into that. So seek to understand the culture. But next, on a micro level, seek to understand the person. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, seek to understand the person. That's really important. One of the pitfalls of a formulaic approach to evangelism is that it can become robotic. I'm reciting a list of facts and then I'm done but rather seek to know the person as an individual. Find out what they believe, what they desire, what their hopes and dreams are, what their worldview is, so that we can bring the gospel to what they care about in their life. When we know our audience, we can communicate the gospel more effectively. So first, know your audience. Second, reason with people. Reason with people. Verse 17, it says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace. Does anybody who would listen, guys, we don't check our brains at the door when it comes to evangelism. We don't just mindlessly recite a list of facts and hope that someone accepts it. Guys, we reason with people. Reasoning means there's give and take. I like to use the phrase gospel conversations because that means that we're asking questions, that we're being asked questions, that we answer, that we reason with people from the scriptures to show that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We reason with people. And I think Paul gives us a model for reasoning with people in this text. First, we start by meeting people where they are. We reason with people by meeting them where they are. Paul found a question that they were asking, namely the unknown God. He examined their beliefs, their worldview. He found a question that they were asking. He found that they were a very religious people that are searching for God, but it didn't lead them to the truth. He knew the culture like we just talked about. And so he met them where they are. Guys, this is a great place to start in evangelism. Find out what they care about. Find the questions that they are asking and build a bridge to Christ. Use it as a starting point for a gospel conversation. And all that takes for us is just listening. Just listening and connecting dots and having conversations. So a lot of you guys know, I've, I've told a lot of stories about this before, but uh, for about six years before I came on staff at Coastal, I worked at a hospital. And um, one, of my, one time I went into work after a mass shooting had taken place the day before and you know, everyone was talking about it. It was very tragic. And uh, there were two of my coworkers, two guys who were having a conversation about it. And uh, they were talking about what had happened and what, what the issues were, what the solution was, all those kinds of things. 
things. And so I came over there and after like five minutes of internally praying for the courage to actually say something about Jesus, finally, uh, the Lord gave me that. And, and I was able to say, listen, these kinds of tragedies are an example to me that the world is broken, uh, that this world is cursed by sin, and that Jesus is the only hope. And the only hope I have that anything is ever going to change ultimately is that Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. Now, I wish I could tell you, you know, those two guys fell on their knees and prayed the prayer right there in the hallway at the hospital. It didn't happen. But still, I took what they cared about, what they were concerned about, what they were talking about, and I built a bridge to Christ. That's a great way to start an evangelism. Just ask questions, find out what people care about and connect the dots to Christ. Ask questions like, hey, what is something that you're really excited about? What is something that, that you're nervous about? Hey, if you were to die today, that's a little more blunt, that's fine. If you were to die today, what would happen? You know, ask these kinds of big picture questions, listen to what they care about and build a bridge to Christ. Meet people where they are. But we also have to confront sin. This is the second thing that Paul does. He meets people where they are, but then he confronts sin. I love the irony of this story because it starts with Paul being provoked by the idolatry. Then he commends them for being very religious. And then he says, your religion has not led you to the truth. He shows them the bankruptcy of their religion. You have hundreds of gods and you're still not sure if you found them all. He confronts their idolatry. He confronts their sin. They were searching for God. They were very religious and it did not lead them to the truth. And guys, this is always what happens apart from Christ. We are born as people in the image of God to have a relationship with God. Human beings are inherently religious. We have that in religious sense in us, but apart from Christ, it always turns to idolatry. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pause there for a minute. He's saying all of humanity, we know that there's a God. We know it clearly perceived known since the foundation of the world. Verse 21 is going to say for they knew God, but what do we do in our unrighteousness? We suppress the truth. Get the mental picture here of like an overinflated beach ball that you're trying to hold underneath the water in the pool. That's what we're doing with the knowledge of God. We know the truth and we are suppressing it by our unrighteousness. And then what does that lead to? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Suppressing the truth led to exchanging the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. That is idolatry by definition. Idolatry is the replacement of God. It is when we take the things that God has made, the creation, and we put it in the place of the creator. 
That's why Paul can say that Athens was a city filled with idols in church. I can tell you this morning that America is a nation filled with idols. You might say, well, I mean, I don't see a statue to Zeus when I'm driving down the road. What are you talking about? We're not a nation filled with idols. Idols are not just statues. They are whatever replaces God as primary. They are what we exchange for. So we might not bow down at the altars of Zeus, Apollo, or Athena anymore, but we certainly bow down at the idols of money, sex, politics, success, status, power, name it. Take your pick. Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. That we are so good at finding things in creation to give all of our heart to instead of the creator. That is our baseline condition as sinful people. So Paul here, he is confronting their idolatry. He is confronting their sin as the ultimate problem that they need to be saved from. And guys, we must not be shy about talking about sin and evangelism. People are not prepared to hear the good news if they don't understand the bad news. You know, if you ask someone just walking down the street, hey, are you saved? If they're a thoughtful person, they're going to respond with, from what? Someone doesn't need to be saved if they don't know they're lost. We have to understand the bad news first. And according to Paul, the bad news is that we have replaced God with idols. We were created to live for God's glory and to worship and enjoy him forever. And instead we have replaced him with the creation. And that has led to all manner of evil in our lives. So we meet people where they are. We confront sin. But then finally, and most importantly, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We can have a lot of really good spiritual conversations with people, but it's not evangelism until we get to Christ, until we get to the gospel. Notice a few things about Paul's gospel presentation here. It's really, really great. Uh, he starts with God. Verse 24, I love that. He starts with who God is. He doesn't start with us. He starts with God. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, the God is the creator, being Lord of heaven and earth, the God is sovereign. Then he talks about how God is self-sufficient, how he is not served by human hands, but he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. He starts by saying, this is who God is. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Only then does he move to who we are. He moves to humanity in verse 26. And he made, so he created from one man. By the way, who's that one man? Adam, right? But this is a footnote for two seconds. Paul here is affirming that Adam was a real person who really lived. That's important, y'all. Speaking of culturally unpopular things. Adam and Eve were real people who lived in a real garden. There was a real historical fall. End of footnote. Uh, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. So first thing he says about us is that we were created by God to seek him, to have a relationship with him. But then as we just saw in verse 29, we have replaced God with idols and we are sinners. So ask Paul, who is a human being? What is a human being? We are created by God for a relationship with him, but we have sinned. We have to keep both of those things in mind. That is what a person is. We are made in God's image for a relationship with him, but we have sinned against God. 
So he starts with who God is, moves to who we are, but then he moves to who Christ is. Christ is the one who will judge the world. Christ is the one who is risen from the dead. Christ is the one that we need to turn to. He gets to Jesus. And then finally, he calls for a response. All people everywhere repent. So what is Paul's gospel outline? God, humanity, Christ, response. In other words, who is God? Who are you? Who is Jesus? What should I do about it? Guys, that's a great gospel outline. If you're looking for another one, I know we got plenty in the book and all that, but that's a great outline as you're sharing the gospel. Who is God? Who are you? Who is Jesus? What do I do about it? We proclaim the gospel. All right. How to do evangelism. Know your audience. Reason with people. I got one more point for you, and this one's real important. Finally, after we've shared the gospel, we trust God for the results. We trust God for the results. Verses 32 through 34 give us three results of evangelism. The first is ridicule. It's not the one you're hoping for, right? But the first response is ridicule. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They ridiculed Paul. They made fun of him. They laughed at him because he brought up this idea of a resurrection that would have been offensive and foolish in their culture. And, you know, the guys, there are things as Christians that we believe that will get you laughed at. Just, just being real with you this morning. We believe things that will most certainly get you laughed at. Not just the resurrection, but including the resurrection. In fact, let me tell you a story about a time I got laughed at for believing in the resurrection. I was at Gloucester Starbucks a couple of years ago, sitting at sort of that big community table in there with a guy who used to go to our church. And we were having a conversation about spiritual things. And there's another guy sitting at the table and he overheard our conversation and started asking some questions. So it turns out this guy was a Muslim. And so we got to talking about spiritual things. And he said, well, how do you know that your God is the true God and not all these other gods? And I said, well, that's easy because Jesus rose from the dead. He literally laughed at me, like, like audibly laughed out loud uh, at us. And he's like, well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? I started going through some, you know, historical evidence for the resurrection and all that kind of good stuff about, you know, all the eyewitnesses of Christ and all of that. And he said, well, a lot of people say they saw the Loch Ness Monster too. Uh, I didn't mean they saw him. Uh, so at that point, I kind of discerned this conversation is probably not, uh, not going anywhere and I was being trolled. But the point is, sometimes you will share the gospel and you will be laughed at. And that's okay. And that's Okay. I think sometimes we can have this tendency to feel like if the person doesn't profess Christ on the spot, then we failed. Don't put that pressure on yourself because that's not true. This mocking is often the response of hard-hearted unbelief. But whatever we do, we must never try to tailor or water down the message of the gospel to try not to be laughed at or to try to be cool. We've got to be honest because it's only the offensive gospel that can save Guys, the gospel is offensive. Do you know that? The gospel is offensive. I mean, think about it. In evangelism, you are telling someone that you are a sinner in the eyes of almighty God, that you need to turn from the way you've been living your life, your entire life, and you need to repent and turn to Christ. Please be my friend. Like the gospel is offensive, y'all. And it's supposed to be. First Corinthians chapter one. This is what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. I love verse 24. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see what's going on in that text? All of them heard the gospel, right? Some of them, the gospel is stumbling block. It is folly. It is foolishness. Some of them, the gospel is the power of God, the wisdom of God. What's the difference? Verse 24, those who are called. That is the inward calling. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart as they hear the gospel and it's drawing them to Christ. Guys, we preach the gospel. We know that when we preach the gospel, sometimes it will be foolishness. Sometimes it will be folly. Sometimes it will be a stumbling block. But we trust that in God's sovereignty, sometimes those who are called, and it will be the power of God and the wisdom of God We preach the gospel knowing that it will be offensive, but that it's the offensive gospel that God uses to save his people. So what do we do? What do you do this Thanksgiving when you bring up the gospel at the dinner table and your cousin laughs at you? What do we do? First and foremost, well, don't do that, Dan. No punching. Uh, So, um, (laughs) well, maybe. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, First of all, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Don't be ashamed because it's the offensive gospel that saves. But next, we've got to accept that this will happen. Guys, there's no such thing as a cool evangelist. Just get used to it. Like, like it's not, we're not going to win cool points or popularity contests by evangelism. We just need to get over it. We're not here to be cool. We're here to make disciples for Christ. We have to just accept it. Then finally, and this is most importantly, when you're mocked, continue to love and pray for that person. Continue to love and pray for that person. Don't get into, don't retaliate, don't call names, don't get into an argument, but rather love that person, pray for that person. That's the first response. The next response is curiosity. Verse 32, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, I take it that they were curious about the gospel without accepting it. And and that's pretty common. Sometimes we'll talk about Jesus and people are curious. They want to hear more. They want to learn more, but they don't receive him right then. What do we do when we get this sort of a response? Well, first of all, be patient. Many times people hear the gospel many times before they come to know Christ. And that's okay. Be patient with people. Answer their questions. Be persistent and follow up with people. Give them a call a week later. Hey, you remember what we talked about last week? Have you thought more about that? Would you like to talk more about that? And be hopeful. As we just saw, to those who are called, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Be hopeful. God will save his people. We are the messengers. The final response, the one that we hope for and pray for is conversion conversion. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. Hold on a minute. Where's the place that Paul is preaching this sermon? 
the Areopagus, right? Dionysius, the Areopagite. So at least one who is there, one of the men who were there believed. And church tradition tells us that Dionysius went on to become a bishop in the early church. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some believed, some were converted to Christ. Guys, this is always our hope. This is always our prayer when we are sharing the gospel. So, and I think this is important because sometimes this gets neglected when we talk about evangelism. What do you do when someone believes? I mean, after you get done celebrating and clapping and praising God, what do we do when someone believes the gospel? What are the next steps? You know what the first one is? Get baptized. Get baptized, get dunked. In the New Testament, that was the first public act of obedience for a follower of Christ was to get baptized. In fact, earlier in the book of Acts, I love this story. Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch by his chariot and they're driving by the side of the road. They see a river. Like what's stopping me from getting baptized right now? And they got down there and they did it. Guys, baptism is the first step for a follower of Jesus. So again, one more plug for baptism class. If you haven't been baptized, you've got an opportunity coming up next month. Got a class in two weeks. Please sign up. Second, new believers need to get involved in a local church. We don't want to create spiritual orphans where someone makes a profession of faith and then we say, all right, see you in heaven. No, they need to be a part of a family. They need to be a part of a local church. So get them involved in a local church and also help them learn spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer so that they can continue to grow in their faith. If they don't have a Bible, give them one. If you don't have one, we'll give you some right? Give them a Bible, get them in the word so that they can begin to grow. But the bottom line is guys, regardless of how a person responds, when you share the gospel, don't lose heart. Be patient, be persistent, and trust that God will save his children. Success in evangelism is not determined by numbers. It's determined by faithfulness. And so likewise, Failure in evangelism is not when people don't believe, it's when we don't talk. Let us be faithful to share the gospel and trust God to do his job of saving his people. Amen. Well, with that, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come now. And as they're doing that, and as we're wrapping up this morning, I wanna leave you with one final quote, one final statement from, from Charles Spurgeon that's convicting to me about evangelism. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Guys, who's your one? Who's your one that we talked about last week? Who's that person in your life, that friend, that family member, that coworker, that neighbor that you're praying for, that they would come to know Christ? Don't let them go unwarned. Don't let them go unprayed for. Let us have that kind of passion and that kind of zeal in our hearts that every time God gives us an opportunity, we would be faithful to walk through that open door. Let's close with prayer. Lord, I ask, Lord, we know what to say. We know the gospel, but we know what to say in evangelism. Would you please give us the courage to say it? Give us supernatural boldness, Lord, to share your gospel without fear, with love in our hearts, because we know, Lord Jesus, that you are the power and wisdom of God. We believe that you will save your people. So Lord, use us 
to accomplish your mission. God, we love you. Bless us as we go today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close the singing this morning.